0: Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thanks so much for tuning in wherever you are during your busy day, night, or wherever you're listening to this podcast. And as usual, we've got a lot to cram in in our time together. If it's okay with all of you, I will reflect on Labour's £28 billion furore, the borrowing so-called for the green energy plan. Then we will come to your brilliant questions, and we have got some fantastic insight on the return of the Northern Ireland Assembly. We've got the legendary Canon Paul Arbuthnot who highlighted the expediency in the DUP leadership to all of us months before anyone else delved as deep, uh, but we've got others more sceptical. Including our French correspondent, who has been engaged before in debate with uh, Paul, and and uh, lots of other reflections, indeed, on the twenty-eight billion labour defensiveness uh, and and other things too. So yeah, I'm not going to do any notices because we've got so much to get through. But just in five seconds, please sign up to Patreon, uh, where you will have more space to delve deep um, and do subscribe and spread the word. And if you could leave a review, only if you like it, of course, uh, that helps spread the word and expand our cooperative as we make sense of politics in this election year. The mess Labour have got themselves into over the £28 billion is uh, really fascinating on many levels. Some of which actually have been underexplored and are yet uh, fundamental. One is this: policy making under the Starmer leadership is inevitably rushed and not always thought through, and that is less inevitable. What I mean by that is, you know, a partial model for their road to the election is New Labour in 97. Um, The incrementalism, the caution, even the language. I heard Rachel Reeves at the business conference last week saying, we will campaign as a pro-business party, we will govern as a pro-business party, echoing uh, Blair at number 10, we uh, were elected as New Labour, we will govern as New Labour, and so on. There are many echoes. But one of the big differences is that by the time Tony Blair became leader in 1994, uh, he had inherited a whole range of policies um, that weren't going to be dropped. They needed work and detail on from uh, the Neil Kinnock and John Smith era. So, for example, the commitment to rejoin the social chapter uh, was already in place. A commitment to a minimum wage was in place. Uh, A commitment to hold an election on electoral reform was in place. John Smith had set up the Social Justice Commission, of which uh, David Miliband was a player, and some of those policies were already emerging. So the canvas was by no means blank. It was pretty full. Now things had to be, as I say, developed in detail. Devolution, a Scottish parliament, was already a commitment. Now, how this was going to be done and so on had to be worked through. And there were other things that were being carefully worked through behind the scenes the Bank of England independence, the uh, Northern Ireland peace process, and so on. But there was a huge amount already in place. Starmer uh, chose to begin with a blank page, and that is hugely challenging. Uh, Policy development from nothing. And at times it has been. Uh, haphazard. And when you ha- uh, choose to test everything with such intensity, with focus groups, opinion polls, and all the rest of it, it becomes pretty fraught um, and not subject to more intense scrutiny. Which brings us to the 28 billion. Now, on the whole, uh, Rachel Reeves has followed the Gordon Brown rule that everything must be costed. And Uh, She navigates the insane pre-election tax and spend debate, sometimes with great authority. Uh, She's seen it done before with Brown. And so uh, they know it's crazy. They know it's unfair. They know the bar is much higher uh, with the Labour Party in opposition than the Tories, the media bar. And so she has learned how to play a lot of the game. So because it's absurd, you find one popular tax rise. In her case, the non-DOM tax. Uh, Gordon Brown found things like the one-off tax on privatized utilities and so on. And use that as a protective shield to claim you can transform the country. And on the whole, the media buy that. this. The media are obsessed with income tax and so on. And uh, there's very little space there. So that is kind of necessary, and so are fiscal rules, uh, although the nature of the fiscal rules is important as to the space you have in government, Um, and the degree to which you rule out tax um, is also important. So Ed Balls mentioned the other week uh, when Rachel Reeves announced she wasn't going to move on corporation tax beyond its current level. She wasn't going to put it up throughout the whole of the next parliament. Again, in a sort of echo with Gordon Brown on uh, income tax uh, before the 97 election. But Bulls rightly observed that actually he and Brown in the build-up to 97 were very careful about what they ruled out and still left quite a lot of space for what became known as stealth tax rises. Gordon Brown got himself into the odd, slightly contorted position of being famous for his stealth taxes, a contradiction in terms. But it was highly effective because the media was reassured when they heard about income tax being untouched for a whole parliament. And that sort of bought them off. And then it gave Labour space on other issues. Um, so fiscal rules are important. John MacDonald, the Shadow Chancellor, had fiscal rules. But the precise wording of those rules are crucial, not only in the build-up to an election, but also what happens afterwards. Now, in that context, they have already dumped the £28 billion. Pounds. You know, all this kind of media thing. When are they going to do it? They've got to do it. Well, they have. Listen to the answers Keir Starmer although has used this figure of 28 billion when it began and it was Rachel Reeves who made the announcement at a party conference a couple of years ago and got praise for it actually um but this is one of the complexities so there are some in Keir Starmer's office happy to brief against Ed Miliband and oh he lost an election and all this kind of stuff But it was Rachel Reeves, who is a uh, deified figure as far as Keir Starmer is concerned, who made the announcement. So it's harder for them to brief against her, and they're not. Um, But when she made the announcement, it was £28 billion of government borrowing. That's already gone. They're now saying that the figure is an accumulation of existing government spending, uh, private sector investment, as well as some government borrowing. So it's gone. You know, but the media want to hear the words, it's got, which they will hear in the coming days. But the framing is a mess uh, because it makes something that should be exciting and necessary appear defensive, timid, something to be dreaded. And that is a sort of characteristic of the Starmer project. See, the New Labour project was cautious and incremental and defensive in many ways, but uh, Blair and Brown always made it sound positive, partly through the language. Prudence for a purpose was, I think, the best of the many uh, New Labour slogans because it conveyed a sense that the attempt to establish a kind of fiscal macroeconomic stability was being done for a purpose, which was, to put it, a a crude summary, social justice, the space to improve public services, to address issues of uh, inequality, and so on. And it was a really effective one. And so although everything was incremental, they managed through artistry, partly, to make everything seem very positive. The opposite's happening here. Here is an exciting necessary policy, which we'll come on to into a moment, which they are kind of feel they have to hide and run away from. Oh yeah, we're retreating, we're retreating, is the kind of briefing behind the scenes. Yeah, we've already retreated, or we're about to retreat, 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 retreat. And so it is, you know, briefings, Retreat on childcare in schools. And again, we'll do this, but not much more. Retreating, retreating, retreating. Now, some think that this defensiveness is electorally potent because if um, they sound too positive, it implies a tax rise or whatever. But I think it is a problem. And so few will have clocked who don't follow politics closely the substance of the policy – And we'll just say, oh, yeah, they're running away from this. Oh, yeah, what's this? Oh, yeah, the Tories have got them on the run on this. Tories, brackets, 28 points behind in the polls. So part of it is a mishandling of the message. In in the ridiculous pre-election tax and spend debate, it it, it was a mistake to pluck this figure of £28 billion out because in the media... All you're asked about, if you're Labour, is how you're going to pay for it. Black holes, borrowing, will cause interest rate rises. There's a really interesting contrast. Uh, Jeremy Hunt has found, it said, uh, £20 billion for tax cuts. And no one says, well, where, where have you got these £20 billion from? And when the school roofs started collapsing in this rundown country, government said, eh, "We'll find new money for this. It won't come from the existing budgets." And she said, well, thank God it's new money and not from the existing budgets. But no one said, well, "Where's this money coming from? What about the black hole and all this kind of stuff?" But in this kind of pre-election debate, that is how Labour is treated if there are precise figures of this nature, uh, which imply investment. Um, however, once they had done that, you can't undo it. You know? uh, well, they can, they're going to. Um, they have. But the focus should always have been on the ends and what has happened in the United States with Biden's equivalent, which has generated jobs and economic growth. And then you look at some of the specifics, like home insulation you know, because of this retreat, retreat, it sounds like a threat. Um, But in Italy, for example, with a much milder climate, they've uh, had a massive home insulation project. It's been a huge success. Energy bills come down, dependency on energy goes down, and you're in a better place. Borrowing to invest for fruitful outcomes that enhance people's lives. This goes back to another thing, you know, and it is difficult in a build up to an election when tax and spend is a trap. And people like uh, Morgan McSweeney, you know, the campaign's director, is always saying Labour always loses tax and spend elections. But it is where the need to be a political teacher becomes fundamental. You don't get into the mess of guaranteeing. 28 billion come what may. But you you say, look, we want an honest, grown up debate. This is what we feel we need to do uh, as part of our green recovery programme. It will involve borrowing to invest. We hope to reach that figure, but we're not going to pretend it can be guaranteed, irrespective of what happens to the economy, to interest rates and all the rest of it. But we're going to aim high. And we are right to aim high because we're in competition with America and the European Union who are aiming high and because the benefits of such investment will be huge. And anyway, it's unavoidable to meet our target, which we are proud of, um, for 2030, our green targets for 2030 which incidentally will still be in place and if they don't watch it there will then be an endless focus on the means to reaching those targets. British elections somewhat unfairly are always a focus on means rather than ends so one of the problems with the uh, mission statement however admirable about economic growth being the highest of the G7 there's going to be how, 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 uh, between now and the election. And they're incredibly ambitious green targets. If they drop or appear to drop the means to meeting them, partly one of the means, uh, which is investment in new forms of energy, investment in being less dependent on energy in Britain's notoriously uh what's the word uninsulated homes i know that's not a word but you know what i mean um suddenly becomes all a kind of mess and, and and there's a wider issue as well about an assessment of the mood of the electorate it is right to say on the whole though not always actually that when tax and spend is the overriding uh, issue labor loses elections. The the media just don't allow it to win. But look at the mood of the electorate. I think probably since the 2008 crash, the financial crash, and it is restive and impatient. It's not the same electorate that um, uh, voted in New Labour in 1997 with their five tiny pledges and so on. It is an electorate that couldn't make up its mind in 2010 and a a rare peacetime coalition emerged. It's the electorate that voted for Brexit. It's the electorate in Scotland that has voted repeatedly until now, perhaps, for a party wanting independence. Um, It is a kind of, clearly, the polls show this, and, and Labour know this, is an electorate hungry for change. And somehow, they need to convey that sense of hope instead of just briefing they're not going to do this they're not going to do that they're not going to do this oh the fiscal rules are going to be so tight that you can trust us and and it's important as i say the fiscal rules by the way are important in government as well as before government there's a wonderfully vivid interview on youtube with jim callahan who incidentally was a very good interviewee But it was after the devaluation crisis in 1967, where Callaghan left the Treasury. He he was Chancellor during the devaluation crisis. And he does say just that. He said, the bar seems to be much higher for a Labour government. He said, we inherited an economic mess, uh, but the Tories weren't forced to devalue. The bar bar is higher. Well, it's just the reality. It is. The markets and the media hover. And I think one of the insights of that New Labour period that was enduring or should endure is you need that macroeconomic stability to endure and to introduce lasting reform. And one of the problems, even with the 45 government actually, was that they were forced to devalue. It lost all their legendary reforming verve. From then, they kind of just won in 1950 and then, and then were out quite soon after that. And really, Harold Wilson never recovered from the devaluation crisis in 67 on some levels. He didn't have the same vitality and self-confidence, though his political skills were brilliant uh, up until his retirement. So you need that kind of stability, but you also need purpose. And the clarity of that purpose needs to be conveyed with verve and radical vitality. And it's wholly different from '97, where the economy was growing, Britain was still in the single market, and so on. It's more challenging. But therefore, the challenge needs to be met with greater vibrancy than the sort of incrementalism of new labour. Anyway, so there are many factors involved in the mess they've got into over this policy and it is uh it, it is depressing actually um because you do need to think big and sometimes convey big thoughts before an election i mean Rachel Rees has been told by Gordon Brown in and, and one of her conversations with Alistair Darling before he died you know there is money in government you don't need to pledge it in advance there are always ways of finding money in government well that's true but only up to a point so even Gordon Brown, inheriting a growing economy uh, in 1997, uh, found he had to introduce stealth taxes, knew he would have to. They had to use the PFI initiative to get money into building hospitals uh, and so on. It was not that easy. And in the end, of course, they had to put up national insurance, which was a substantial tax rise to pay for improvements in the NHS. So Keir Rachel Reeves... Need to be very careful about how they frame the necessary fiscal rules and to show the purpose behind that need for that macroeconomic stability and hail their plans for this green Recovery program. It's not something to be ashamed about. It's the interesting thing, of course, with Keir Starmer and this rushed policymaking on a blank canvas from just a few years ago, is of course one of the things that swayed him was Biden won in the U.S. election four years ago, pledged to do this. It wasn't a vote loser. Um, Now Biden's deeply unpopular, but it's for other reasons. It's not over this. It's been a success. And if Britain doesn't do it, the European Union are doing it, America are doing it, and Britain will just fall behind uh, uh, this sort of isolated island with low productivity and all the rest of it. So policy making, presentation of policy, needs to be quickly thought about in the build-up to, 90, uh, I could say, ninety seven, there's a Freudian slip, to the next election. They're right, by the way, that every policy needs to be bomb-proofed. I followed Blair very closely in the build-up to 97. He once said to me, I'm going off for a few days on my own to read through every single policy proposal to make sure it's bomb-proofed for the election, knowing that previous elections have been blown apart by some imprecise policy area, mainly to do with fundamental things like the economy or defence. They're right to do that. But again, it raises the question, what is the nature of bomb-proofing in a period of mountainous challenges that they will have to meet if they're to flourish in government? Now, I think, it's time to go over... To all of you. If you want to join in our never ending debate in the uh, Rock and Roll Politics Cooperative, uh, it's steverick 14 at iCloud.com. That's steverick 14 at iCloud.com. Uh, and we are going to return to the 28 billion because some of you, with this latest briefing, there's been about sort of eight briefings to pick different newspapers on different days, but the latest one from The Guardian seemed pretty definitive, the figure will be dumped, Uh, the government will borrow about a third, the rest will cut, you know, anyway, it's familiar. I mean, they've kind of said it, as I said, but they haven't yet uttered the words. And of course, Mm -hmm. another issue for Keir Starmer, and partly explains the hesitancy, is he wakes up to focus groups saying, you know, he's no one knows what he stands for, he flip-flops and so on. And here he is about to do something on Labour's most distinctive policy. Um, Yeah, anyway, it's bloody hard being in opposition, especially Labour in opposition, and it's nerve-wracking as an election moves into view. But that role of being political teachers, explaining why you are proposing something radical, and even with the media and its mad focus on well, you know, so you're planning to spend 10p on um, hospital improvements, but won't that leave a black hole in 2032 when, you know, there's going to be all of that anyway? And it's insane and it's damaging. But that's just the media climate in the build up to an election. It's lazy from the media. Um, but why? Why is it worth it? What are the benefits? Anyway. Over to all of you. We're going to come to that in a minute. But as I said at the beginning, uh, we have got some great stuff on the re-emergence of the Northern Ireland Assembly, a a moment of epic significance that uh, took shape a few days ago. And first of all, I'd say uh, from the Reverend Canon Paul R. Bathnot, who's been following this incredibly closely. His church is in uh, Dublin, but uh, he is from... Northern Ireland. He goes there all the time to watch his local football team, but be much more significant to this. He follows very closely uh, developments in Northern Ireland politics, as well as um, his base in Dublin. So, fall first. It's not often you get upbeat news from Northern Ireland, but we definitely got some last week. The DUP number 10 deal got over the line, and the Assembly and Executive are back up and running. This undoubtedly, it's a good thing for the people of Northern Ireland. I think a sense of relief could be felt as everything finally slotted back into place. It was as fascinating as it was nail biting to see Sir Geoffrey Donaldson of the pragmatic wing of the DUP sell the deal to the more doctrinaire elements of the party. It really was. Paul sent me a clip from uh, a Donaldson speech in the comments and it was a kind of mesmerizing few minutes. Close observers of these goings-on will have noticed a change in Donaldson's rhetoric as the deal approached finalisation. He moved from saying no to actually facing down the hard elements of unionism. Uh, and he, he Paul mentions the speech uh, in the Commons reflecting this position. He deserves credit for this, and this achievement shouldn't be underestimated. As for the deal itself, within the context of the chaos of Brexit, it seems a good deal for everyone. The rough edges of the Windsor framework have been sanded down enough to give the DUP political cover to retake their stormant seats. They should be reassured that not one poll suggests that a border poll should be called or would lead to constitutional change. On the other hand, the result of the previous Assembly election can now be rightfully respected. It's incredibly important to do this. So, now it's over to the new executive to make good positive changes. Let's wish them well, both green and orange. It is another really interesting moment in the extraordinary history of uh, Northern Ireland. Um, and the internal dynamics of the DUP, as Paul has mentioned, has been just on a kind of nerve-shredding edge for months. Um, but now it is up and running. Now, our French correspondent, Dominique Joule challenged paul this was about a year ago when he detected expediency at the top of the dup and this is her response to the uh, assembly up and running. I'm delighted for the people of Northern Ireland, now that they will have the representation and governance of which they've been doing. De- By the way, Dominica is from Northern Ireland. She lives in France. Uh, now they have the governance uh, which they have been deprived for over two years. I am puzzled, however, about aspects of the deal. The DUP leader has on multiple occasions claimed to have changed the Northern Ireland Protocol and the Windsor Agreement, despite the fact that not a single amendment has been made to either. Given that the Assembly will have the right to assess the impact of any future changes in EU laws on Northern Ireland, does this not make it more likely that the UK government will simply avoid the divergence which the hard Brexiteers have consistently demanded? one cabinet meeting per year to be held in northern ireland serves only to underline the symbolic nature of the deal given that successive governments are not bound to honor the deal it therefore has a limited shelf life so there we are she adds there's a lot going on in france but today belongs to my beloved northern ireland it is uh interesting what got the deal over the line a brexit as uh paul also suggests remains a huge chaotic issue. but And I think you are right, Dominica. the implication is that divergence becomes incredibly risky. It does for many reasons, but in the context of Northern Ireland. And therefore, the hard Brexiteer vision has always been challenged by the implications for Northern Ireland. Um, and the more the UK diverges, the more problematic and, dis- and, and distant Northern Ireland becomes from the UK. And your other points uh, are also the case. These things are always fragile. But I noticed that you and Paul are united in uh, welcoming the return of the Assembly. Geoff Strange uh, has read the entire document, which I, uh, I bet Paul and Dominique have as, as well. I haven't. It's, and he says that us two, jeff and i have both read james joyce's ulysses in its entirety we have a book that many critics have summarized as being about some chap who walks around dublin for a day maybe this command paper can be viewed in the same way a mighty tone that essentially says not much at all i love reading these things i am an anorak for this stuff and i'd actually put the good friday agreement up there as a beautifully well-crafted piece of writing but essentially this command paper is a repackaged Windsor framework um yeah but as he also adds that's it is interesting it is it the Windsor framework is the basis of this um but he acknowledges there is a a fig leaf that the DUP could fashion as a precursor uh, as they return to power sharing and partly the politics of Northern Ireland is a kind of artfulness um I don't necessarily compare it Jeff to James Joyce in its artistry. But the Good Friday Agreement, which I have read, is artful in the most positive way possible. It kind of smooths over unresolved issues with a brilliance. And there's a bit of this this time as well. But sometimes the artistry, if it leads to, which it has done this time, a return of the assembly, can work on itself so you get the assembly back on the basis of a kind of words in a document but if the assembly gets back and starts to work and the people of northern ireland respond positively to the assembly being up and running we're in an interesting place again um ed derrick makes a, a, a fascinating point about this whole devolution project Uh, He says, it seems to me that the subtlety of the 1997 devolution settlement lies in the way that it requires the devolved administrations to make devolution work on its own terms. Uh, And he points out this has happened with Mark Dreyford in Wales. It's eluded the SNP in Scotland under three leaders because the SNP has no vested interest in making the Holyrood system work, uh, as to do so would undermine their very raison d'etre. But the same failure to make devolution work properly has also undermined the SNP's credibility as a competent governing party. The same issue will come to the fore in Northern Ireland now, that at least for the time being, the DUP has come in from its self-imposed exile. Sinn Féin will have to demonstrate its competence in administering the six-county statelet. It seeks to abolish if it is to have any long-term electoral future. So has the 1997 devolution settlement effectively stopped the move towards constitutional independence, at least for the foreseeable future, in the sense that if the independence or nationalist parties rule successfully, it's a tribute to devolution and not independence. And if they don't, they sort of undermine their own uh, potency electorally. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, the, the devolution is is really uh, interesting and you raise one of the many fascinating consequences that arise from it and, and this genius as long-term fan of rock and roll politics at edinburgh and podcast follower see you at the edinburgh festival um, well god yeah we're going to be delving deep on a lot of themes at, at the edinburgh festival and having a laugh as well your favourite history nerds are back Wherever you get your podcasts thank you there were many others on uh, northern ireland but we're running out of time so if it's okay with you i'm going to move on to i got loads and loads on this briefing that Labour, or one of the many briefings that they're going to uh, dump their £28 billion commitment. And one from Nick uh, Radcliffe, um, who has been, in in some ways, our uh, environment-green climate change correspondent, who I met at the Edinburgh Festival, and we had a long talk about He said, why aren't you doing more on climate change? It got me thinking. Uh, anyway, and he... By the way, berates me sometimes, focusing on growth, which I still do. Uh, but he says, "What a depressing week, both for growth heads like you and green heads like me." It seems to me that by dropping his one bold signature policy commitment, Starmer is jeopardising both Labour's likelihood of winning and its prospects of success in government. If it should win, he's feeding the flip-flop narrative and the idea that Labour wants power without any clear idea of what to do with it. Uh, I think you need a second part of your focus group to monitor for progressives who simply can't stomach a Labour Party that will no longer advocate for the climate, the EU, the poor progressive taxation, public spending or humanity in the Middle East. Um, One of the interesting things is to say uh, focus groups the uh, Westminster-based media, lead to a kind of extreme caution uh, in the new Labour leadership and advice from those who were around in '97 and so on. Scotland is one really interesting example. Um, The SNP are in crisis, like the Tory party are in crisis, Um, but they will fight the next election uh, from the left. And it's quite interesting, the by-election that Labour won in Scotland Uh, The candidate, Anidik Islamo, was up when he was up, was kind of pitched more to the left. I don't think, Nick, we, we must have this discussion, that they are dumping some of these things. It's just they don't know how to deal with the tax and spend onslaught and put the case for this policy. Now, as I've already said, there is a way of doing it, I think. And you need to be powerful political teachers. And it is tricky with the British media but I think you're right to suggest there might be consequences if they don't do this, negative ones, uh, in terms of um, some voters turning away. Although, you know, the polls are what the polls are at the moment. Um, now, John from Aberdeen says, um, uh, on the same theme, uh, Keir Summer has repeatedly shown himself to be spineless, weak, and dishonest. He changes his mind when expedient. Um Although expediency is not a bad thing, John. Uh, it's just whether it's expediency in a way that is uh, going to lead them to have a, a win and the space then to govern effectively. Um, uh, but John says he's, he, he won't give his surname because he's a member of the Labour Party and fears he'll be expelled um, if his surname is given out in the pocket as well. Senior figures in the Labour Party, do listen, John and uh your anonymity is uh to be advised for the time being because i know you are a, 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 an intense uh critic thank you uh a related question from uh river McElrath. I hope that's the uh, correct pronunciation of the surname. What do you think the impact will be of the growing disaffection among young voters towards Labour? My partner, who I consider to be one of your barometer voters for new listeners, we have barometer voters in the Rock and Roll Politics Cooperative, uh, who are guiding us through their thoughts in the build-up to the election. Anyway, back to the email. Um, yeah, my partner, Uh, is one of uh, the cooperative's barometer voters having voted ukip brexit and conservative is now planning to vote green Ah, that's quite a journey most of my friends including active Labour members are also planning to vote green uh, because of labor stance on the israel gaza conflict Uh, that that too is an issue uh, a big one, uh, Jason Cowley, the editor of the New States, wrote quite a good piece in the Sunday Times the other day about um, the impact of this and the initial incident. Keir Starmer, you know, I must not be Corbyn, I will not be Corbyn, uh, to be sort of un- or seemingly unqualified in his support for Israel. Anyway, yeah, well, uh, let's see. I say the opinion polls, uh, River, suggest... Um, you you say, could this have more of an impact than pollsters currently realise? Polls are often wrong. And we forget this quite often, because polls do determine the mood. And there's no doubt at the moment, uh, Labour are perceived as a government in waiting. Uh, And with good courts, and many anticipate a landslide. It is based on the opinion polls. And yet when you... Uh, explore themes like the mood of young people on issues about the Middle East, the green economy, and so on. Um, The mood in Scotland, which tends to be more responsive to a kind of uh, more left-of-centre message, which is certainly the pitch the SNP uh, has been making in recent years, and so on. It is, I think it's a more complex electorate Uh, now than in 1997 because of what's happened in the many many intervening years um Okay. Yeah. God, blimey. I, we we just I can't resist this one. And then what I think we're going to do. So many brilliant questions that I think we might have to do a one of our question time uh, specials uh, later this week. If if the if the legendary podmasters have the space for me to do it. But I'm going to do uh, this one because, as you know, uh, this is from Archie Dempster. And then I'll kind of summarise some of the other brilliant questions which we'll try and come to. Uh, he's been analysing the Lord Frosty Frost and the scope scope for a biography of this maniac, this unelected buffoon who is dominating kind of the right of politics and has wrecked the british economy with his uh, and our capacity to move around with his brexit deal uh, there's been no one like him anyway uh, he's been delving deep about frosty frost and and apparently he was useless even when he was ceo of the uh, scotch whiskey association which was his job prior to negotiating the most important uh a deal for Britain since 1945 uh, during his tenure the Scottish Parliament legislated to put a minimum price on alcohol uh, to address the nation's perceived problem with harmful drinking it was essentially a health improvement measure frosty led a challenge to this based on the prop uh, and he took the Scottish took to the Scottish courts and lost He took to the English courts and lost. He took to the European courts and lost. He lost in every court he submitted his challenge to, about seven in all, costing a tonne of money. He moved on shortly afterwards, but not before launching a broadside against the city of Edinburgh and so yeah well that is part of a pattern with lord frosty frost uh that um everything he touches is a disaster area it's one reason why this coup against sunak won't work frost's involved um and it will be a disaster but we are living through the consequences of lord frosty frost in so many ways and um a labor equivalent who had caused such havoc would be in exile uh, and Frost gets a column in the Daily Telegraph and uh, pontificates grandly as if everything he's touched has been a triumph and it's been the opposite. Um, anyway, look, there's some brilliant questions, more uh, suggestions of slogans from uh, Robert Hillier and Alex Bell from Switzerland. and uh, Robert actually is in South Africa and reflecting on possible slogans for Labour. There's a profound uh, question about centralization and devolution of power from Dan Carriad, which would would need a whole podcast um Alison Keys reflects on uh, whether Sunak is as uh safe uh, well safe in one level because I don't think the coup will work whether uh, safe as that uh uh John Chambers also wonders whether they might dump him late February to mid May being a danger area great question from Charlie Beaumont who um who is currently reading a biography of John Stuart Mill's by Richard Reeves oh yeah Richard Reeves used to work for Nick Clegg um do you think there will be any justification of using uh, Mill's observation that stupid people join the Tory party um although he says it's probably very unfair. Um, Lord Frosty Frost is stupid, Charlie, um, but not all of them are. Danny Evans, uh, as you said, probably not Versus uh, about the coup, but nothing is impossible. If the election is in November, this leaves enough time for two more Tory leaders. They could try out Badenoch and Frosty Frost. Can you imagine Frosty Frost leading to the Then Labour can say what they want and get a landslide. Uh, uh, Venetia Kane, uh is very. She does a lot of canvassing, and she says there is complete disillusionment with the Tories, but not much enthusiasm for Starmer. She thinks a lot of Tory voters are just not going to turn out at the general election, uh, which is really interesting. And yeah, yeah. So a low poll um, that that means the Tories lose, of course, but it means the Labour government comes in. With limited enthusiasm at the beginning, although I think they're going to get one hell of a honeymoon for various reasons. Um, oh, yeah. Amy McGuinness notices that Lee Rowley is out and about, about the rock and roll politics cooperative's hero, Lee Rowley, uh, uh, parroting the Tory slogan, Back to Square One. Hopeless slogan, because as um, uh, uh, he says, who came up with that idea? Most people go die to get back to square one Um, anyway look we've got a fantastic questions they're just a sample for you so i haven't got time to reflect on them all Uh, but i think you'll have done your cooking had a whiskey you know gone running walked up some beautiful hillside somewhere uh or swam you can listen to podcasts while swimming these days you know Um, anyway uh, thanks so much for the questions keep them coming in so if you could leave a review that would be great do subscribe tell your friends and family to subscribe so the cooperative grows so the depth of sense making develops even more so if if you could leave a review those five star ones you know nothing else please Uh, but anyway thanks as ever for tuning in and we need to get together very soon to make sense of it all